Dyspiewaj o polskie dzieci, cały świat się przysłuchuje. Złotki świąko jasne świeci, Pan Bóg w niebie się raduje. Hej ojcyzna, nasza droga, wszyscy o tym wiemy przecie. Zesty polsku z łaski Boga, najpiękniejsza na tym świecie. When Polish children are singing, the whole world is listening. The golden sun shines brighter. God rejoices in heaven. Hey, Fatherland, our dear, we all know that you, Poland, by the grace of God, are the most beautiful in this world. Welcome back to the Opiongo Line as we present Kashubes of the West. That was Teresa Prince singing another one of those beautiful old Kashubian lullabies that are sometimes still heard in the Wilno Hills. But on with our show. Singing lullabies is a talent many Kashubes learned early in life, usually from their mothers or grandmothers, though just often, perhaps, from their fathers and grandfathers. Such a musical tradition has interesting consequences for those of us here in Renfrew County, where we take our pleasures wherever we can, be they on a wild Saturday night or perhaps on a sacred Sunday morning which is why one of our great joys back in the 1970s, especially if we weren't Kashub or Catholic, centered on sneaking into St. Hedwig's Church here in Barry's Bay. Why? Well, why wouldn't we? It was the place Sunday morning to soak up all that joyful noise made by the parish choir, backed by that impressive pipe organ, after being called to service by St. Hedwig's wonderfully melodic church bells. Josh Blank knows about what we speak. He's the author of several books and has written eloquently of those wonderful Polish Kashub musicians, enchanting choirs, and unique bells. Christian praise and sacred gratitude, expressed through song and music, have long reverberated inside the walls of St. Hedwig's Roman Catholic Church in Barry's Bay. Long-standing hymns such as What Child Is This? How Great Thou Art? and Sing a New Song have long been part of this old church's repertoire. So too are many Polish Kashub hymns, which have waned of late due to a declining number of Polish Kashub-speaking parishioners, yet they remain to illustrate a much deeper meaning in those songs of praise and gratitude. Local Polish Kashub settlers, who first built St. Hedwig's early in the 20th century, often prayed for divine intervention and relief from their problems of everyday life in Renfrew County. That necessity of asking for help was often only expressed in their Polish Kashub hymns. So too was a strong devotion to Mary, the mother of Jesus. Since Poland's foundation, and especially after 1656, when Mary was crowned Queen of Poland by King Kazimierz, Mary has stood at the very center of the Polish homiletic tradition and has served as an object of deeply felt devotion. That reverence towards Mary continues today among local descendants of those early Polish Kashub immigrants. At St. Hedwig's, throughout its long history that now stretches more than a century, countless songs and hymns dedicated to Mary have been sung. They range from Ave Maria to 
tis the month of our mother, as well as Pogura Dolina. Praise and veneration of Mary is also very much evident in Svianta Jadwiga, a hymn to St. Hedwig. Interestingly, in 1965, a number of St. Hedwig's choir members, including Elizabeth Schala and two of her daughters, Sister Genevieve Schala and Zita Glovchewski, composed a particular song of gratitude, thankful for the gifts and talents of Monsignor Bernatsky, St. Hedwig's founding pastor. It was occasionally sung at Mass, as well as other choral events and school functions. In addition, over the years, the choirs of St. Hedwig's have acquired a singular reputation for a specific type of song that carries a great cultural significance for many of its Polish Kashub parishioners. Kolendi, or Polish Christmas carols, have long inspired and memorialized St. Hedwig's strong cultural feeling. In the words of Jerzy Bartminski, Polish caroling brings together something, quote, inherited from a distant past and elements which look far ahead, anticipating an order yet to come, end quote. Various carols sung at St. Hedwig's demonstrate this. For instance, Annual Pasterzum Movil, An Angel Told the Shepherds, was originally written in Latin and dates from the 15th century. And the 18th century carol, Bugsheorogi, God is Born, was written by Franciszek Karpinski. It's a carol with a melody drawn from an old coronation polonaise. Such carols were often learned by heart from ancestors, or from Spievnik, those handwritten 19th century songbooks which were passed down and often gifted among Polish Kashub families. Such church music remains a much-respected art form, first brought to Renfrew County by Polish Kashub immigrants who arrived here in mid-19th century. Each organist, choir director, or choral member at St. Hedwig's over the years brought different talents and preferences, but could all make each song sing in different ways. Depending on who led the choir or the mass, each hymn or carol could often sound quite different. In fact, if early St. Hedwig's parishioners were to sing from their Spievnik, many different melodies, pitches, and meters were more than possible. The early handwritten or published Spievnik included hymnals local families purchased from American booksellers, and they contained no melodies at all. They were simply known. Every singer was expected to have learned these in their childhood. Even as late as the 1970s, when a collection of English and Polish hymns was compiled locally and became known as the St. Hedwig's Hymnal, it too remained faithful to early Spievnik and included no melodies, only the words for each hymn. It was used extensively until the late 20th century when contemporary mass-produced books, complete with musical notation but no Polish Kashub language hymns or carols, were introduced. Glory and Praise and the Catholic Book of Worship became the standard hymnal of choice for most Catholic churches. Of course, the usual instrument for laying down the melody during Mass or any other church choral event was not standard musical notation. Rather, that job usually belonged to a powerful church organ. At St. Hedwig's, the first known organ goes back to before the church building was even completed. In 1898, D.W. Karn triple reed organ was hauled out of the local home of John Atmansky and Mary Kodrowski and it was brought by sleigh to the unfinished St. Hedwig's for Midnight Mass on December 24th, 1914. Currently in the possession of Dr. Ron Glavczewski and on loan to the St. Hedwig's rectory, that organ must have resounded wonderfully in all its power and glory among the walls of St. Hedwig's that very first time. While it's impossible to transport ourselves back to that first Mass in 1914, we can still imagine it, or better still, 
Here's what its current owner imagines as he listens, quote, to the warm accompaniment of this parlor organ with pride and joy as they sang and celebrated their sacred liturgy and the beautiful Kalendi they knew and loved, end quote. Two years later, in 1916, a hand-operated bellows organ was purchased for $288 and remained in use until the early 1940s. At that time, the Omanic family donated a beautiful new pipe organ, constructed by Casavant Freire, which was installed and made ready for use in 1943. Still resplendent in its choral majesty today, that Freire organ remains St. Hedwig's most powerful musical instrument, if not cultural symbol. Several notable organists have contributed to the spiritual life of St. Hedwig's along the way. Martha Bernaski, a sister of the church's founding pastor, was the first to play on that reed organ loaned back in 1914. In 1918, it was Henry Czapeski's turn. In 1926, Drusilla Daly and then Margaret Daly and Mary Omanic took over the keyboard in 1928. That same year, the Sisters of St. Joseph arrived at St. Hedwig's and became its choir leaders and organists, according to Sister Teresa Lepak, archivist for the Sisters of St. Joseph in Pembroke. Over the latter half of the 20th century, John, Ron, and Michael Glovczewski, Julie Palbecki-Zurkowski, Eileen Glashinsky, Debbie yarskavich Palbecki, Mary Shalla, and Suzanne Dudek, among others, also played the organ at St. Hedwig's, along with Pauline Burkat and Julianne Palbecki. In 1999, Zita Glovczewski, after almost 40 years of playing St. Hedwig's organ, including many years alongside her sister, Sister Genevieve, finally relinquished her organist duties and was much appreciated by the parishioners. Along with those organists, many dedicated parishioners sang their hearts out in the St. Hedwig's choir. Few names have been preserved over the years, but we do know the choir at St. Hedwig's in 1973. It was directed by Sister Genevieve and consisted of the following singers, Edmund Sobolski, Paul Rokuski, Edward Shala, Teresa Mask Beanish, Phyllis Sobolski Bibi, Ursula Micah Burkat, Susan Shala Sobolski, Madeline Gatoski Galka, Carla Briggs, Pauline Burkat, Lorraine Sobolski, and Vicky Sobolski. Other faithful choir members over the years included Maxi Mintha, Frank B. and Mary Glovczewski, Leonard Palbeski, and John J. Glovczewski. During the 1980s, the St. Hedwig's Choir came under the direction of Steli Urich, who remained its significant cornerstone for years. Also in the choir loft at the time were Darlene Dombrowski, Dorinda Yarskavich, and Donna Hearn. St. Hedwig's also has another august, if sometimes forgotten, member of its musical heritage. Although not considered a regular instrument by most, St. Hedwig's church bells have been used in some distinctly unique ways over the years. As Ingrid Peretz argues, there are similar church bells in several Quebec villages that are similarly unique, if only because, quote, their bells have defined the landscapes of their villages and have long shaped their soundtrack. They rang out the rhythms of community life from birth to death for generations. They also warned of fires or spelled out seminal moments with their peals and jangles, end quote. The sound of St. Hedwig's church bells are still heard across Barry's Bay, and ringing them well is still considered an art form. From signaling masses to the solemn toll of a funeral service, or the sweet jangle of a wedding procession, the bells of St. Hedwig's, in the proper hands of its talented bell ringers, have long produced many unique melodies for over a century. John Atmansky and Mrs. August Bernatsky sponsored the first bell, 
dedicated to Bronislav Peter Stanislav Hedwig. Curiously, their donation also established another unique St. Hedwig's custom, still practiced today, of getting to strike the bell at St. Hedwig's after making a sizable donation to the church. Indeed, after that first bell, a grand ceremony and picnic was held on August 15, 1917, to bless two more bells purchased for the church. Over the years, many have tried their hand at bell ringing at St. Hedwig's. But in order to obtain the correct melody, pace, and tone, it takes a deft hand, an excellent ear, and a very strong set of muscles sometimes. Not too surprisingly, a written guide has existed for those parishioners charged with ringing those bells. And while some melodic combinations are no longer in use any longer, the old parish bell document illustrates many of the early patterns and combinations that were once heralded throughout the village. In 2003, in order to preserve such historic sounds at St. Hedwig's, a former parishioner and organist by the name of John M. Glifchewski, now a retired music professor and talented pianist in his own right, released a CD entitled Polish Hymns from St. Hedwig's, a 1973 heritage recording. A remarkable heritage recording of significant value, it was meant as, quote, a token of gratitude to those who sang for that 1973 recording, and as a tribute to all those who have continued to sing these hymns, end quote. With more than a century of raising their talented voices with church choral music, many St. Hedwig's parishioners currently, but especially those with deep Polish kashu roots, know their unique community has evolved artistically in many different musical ways, thanks in part to the help and direction of St. Hedwig's many different pastors, organists, church directors, and choral members. It has given some a deeper faith, for others a deeper appreciation of those creative people who have opened up a lifelong interest in the arts, often expressing themselves in three languages, Latin, Polish Kashub, and English, and using many wonderful melodies. The sound of St. Hedwig's remains full of Christian praise and sacred gratitude. On a personal note, I remember my time in the choir as a youngster with Grandma Zita quite fondly. Frequently, my job was to ferry the list of hymns for Saturday Night Mass down to the lectern. I remember quite well the reverberations of the organ, not only on Saturday nights, but for high masses as well. In my mind, I can still hear the antiphonal singing from left to right in the choir, as well as the many responsorial hymns led by Ed Shalla. Enough talk. Time to hear that wonderful St. Hedwig's Choir. Here it is, almost raising the roof at St. Hedwig's back in 1973, belting out one of our favorite songs, Hymn to St. Hedwig.
Not everything about our local Kashubians deals with their exceptional musical talent, nor even their Herculean effort to make a life for themselves in Renfrew County. Central to their national character, there is also a rich understanding of never forgetting who they are, nor refusing to see those who are disadvantaged as they themselves once were. In a phrase, many local Kashubs still have a shrewd eye and a big heart for those hurt by the world. Listen for a moment to Teresa Prince. Besides bringing us those wonderful Kashubian lullabies today, she's also an accomplished genealogist and prolific writer of all things Kashubian. Here's one of our favorite articles that she wrote, telling us something contrary to what those nattering nabobs of negativity sometimes want us all to believe, that Kashubs, like all ethnic groups in Canada, are too much taken up with their own history and culture, that they fail to notice much about, say, issues of social justice in the rest of Canada, or indeed in the rest of the world. To that we say, listen up, as Teresa tells us something of what the good folks at St. Hedwig's Parish have been up to. On October the 30th, 2006, a group of interested parishioners from St. Hedwig's Parish met to talk about offering financial aid to impoverished people in a number of developing countries. The group first decided they needed to contact local organizations in those impoverished countries. Secondly, they needed to educate themselves and other parishioners about the socio-economic issues of those countries. And thirdly, and most importantly, they needed to start raising funds. That same evening, St. Hedwig's Mission Committee was formed. It included St. Hedwig's Parish Priest, Father Chris Shalla, as well as Clifford Blank, Marlene Hool, Mary Margaret Kelly, Angela Larbetsky, Marek Milan, and Paul Thompson. At a subsequent meeting, Clifford Blank agreed to chair the new committee. Around the same time, a different group of people from Barry's Bay, Irene Mask, Carmen Palbetsky, Teresa Prince, Carmel Rumleski, and Brenda Sabatine, all departed on a religious pilgrimage bound for Lima, Peru. They were joined by Bishop Richard Smith and other pilgrims from the Diocese of Pembroke to which they all belonged. Motivated by a desire to encounter Christ in the Peruvian people, once they arrived in South America, many of the pilgrims were soon shocked by the poverty and living conditions they encountered firsthand. Eventually, the five pilgrims returned to Barry's Bay utterly changed and were determined to do something to help the lives of the poor souls they had witnessed. They also talked to other people in Barry's Bay about what they had seen. Some ended up joining the new St. Hedwig's Mission Committee. Simply by telling their stories of what they had seen to other parishioners, they had so moved those other parishioners of St. Hedwig's 
that the five pilgrims managed to swell the ranks of the original committee. Less than two months after its inception, St. Hedwig's Mission Committee thus organized its first fundraising event in December 2006. Held at St. Hedwig's, it was called Home for Christmas, essentially a concert with Robert Urich as the star attraction. He was the youngest of Stella Urich's seven children, and his mother had been choir director at St. Hedwig's during the 1980s and 90s, where Robert had first learned to perform for a large audience. But Robert Urich's real ability to pack the house that night in Barry's Bay had more to do with the fact that he was a consummate singer, dancer, and stage and film actor who had toured the world professionally from Hawaii to Barcelona, from Las Vegas to Miami. For instance, Robert Urich had worked with Vin Diesel in The Pacifier and danced with the Bare Naked Ladies in the Juno Awards, and that, after working the classical stage at the Shakespeare Festival in Stratford, Ontario. So, when Robert showed up for his hometown in Barry's Bay that December night, his hometown showed up for him in droves. One half of the proceeds immediately went to the mission committee. Six months later, on June the 24th, 2007, another St. Hedrick's group of consummate fundraisers, the Sacred Heart League, sponsored a parish breakfast for the benefit of the mission committee. The majority of the proceeds that morning soon arrived at a specific location in Peru. It turned out that two sisters of St. Joseph from Barry's Bay had previously set up a similar goodwill mission in Chincha Alta, Peru back in 1964 and they still have contacts down there. Along with another impoverished community in Chinchabaja, these two Peruvian communities were soon devastated once again by an earthquake that hit Peru only a few months later. A few weeks after that earthquake, St. Hedwig's Mission Committee decided to begin holding fundraising euchre parties every second week. Two parishioners, Mary Blank and Andy Edmansky, immediately pitched in and started setting things up. They were soon joined by Bernadette Dudak, Helen Gatoski, Angela Larbetsky, and Teresa Prince. During the next five years, these euchre games generated over $10,000 the proceeds aimed at a variety of organizations. They included medical practitioners who traveled to different developing countries at their own expense to work in impoverished villages for short periods of time. Those particular St. Hedwig's donations were directed through Mary Nishala Gatshing, a registered nurse who had grown up in Barry's Bay. The mission committee provided a continuous funding stream
to the Sisters of St. Joseph in Peru. In 2009, they helped establish a daycare and nursery school in Chincha Alta. In 2010, the committee also sent funds to Trebinitsa, Poland for the benefit of impoverished children. The Sisters of Trebinitsa were able to provide them with a traditional Vigilia or Christmas Eve dinner and also managed to take them out for an excursion. As well, St. Hedwig's Mission Committee encouraged a group of St. Hedwig's parishioners to make annual personal donations towards the further needs of those Polish children. In addition, other donations were sent to other groups in Peru and Poland, including another rather unique project. In 2006, Father Jan Flizikowski in the Kashubian parish of Borshakowy, Poland, reached out to worldwide descendants of former parishioners from his church seeking help to preserve a very old wooden church. Originally, the parish church of St. Martin had been built between 1722 and 1726 and was in dire need of repairs. Parishioners and friends of St. Hedwig's, some with ancestral roots in that particular parish in Borshakovi, generously contributed to that repair project. In the spring of 2007, through St. Hedwig's Mission Committee, a donation of $5,000 was sent to Borshakovi for the restoration of their historic wooden church. More recently, in 2015, St. Hedwig's Mission Committee contributed another $5,800 to the desperately poor and only last year sent an additional $5,000. Finally, in a first world of publicity-seeking politicians, billionaires, and media celebrities, it's interesting to note that in its own small way, St. Hedwig's Mission Committee has made a difference in many lives in the developing world by providing financial support to people who perhaps had never heard of the Polish Kashubs who had once emigrated to Renfrew County. So much for thinking Kashubs are gazing at their own navels, caught up only in their own local history or uninterested in what is going on in the rest of our world. Indeed, one of the reasons there is so much interest in our Kashubs locally, especially among non-Kashubs, is their ability to reach out to the global village and bring thousands of people from across Canada, the United States, and from around the world to one of our most prized cultural attractions here in the entire Ottawa Valley. It's called the Wilno Heritage Park and Museum, and it's got to be seen to be believed. Sadly, again this year, the COVID-19 pandemic has all but put the kibosh on the museum's annual Kashub Day, usually held on the first weekend in May. Still, here to tell you why that museum is not really what it appears to be is Josh Blank, the award-winning author of Creating Kashubia, published by McGill Queen's University Press. 
No one can know the future of the Polish Kashubs in and around the communities of Barry's Bay and Wilno. Some born into these communities fear that the very real loss of the Polish Kashub language with each passing generation may invariably lead to a loss of ethnicity. It's the very same concern expressed by many French Canadians living across the country, and not just in Quebec, about their cultural identity. Yet, despite the fact that many in the present generation fear losing their ethnicity because they are losing their language, be it French or Polish Kashub, many still remain steadfast in participating in local folk or ethnic activities. Why? Well, the sociologist Herbert Gans reminds us that ethnicity can endure without physically returning home. He calls this symbolic ethnicity. Quote, a nostalgic allegiance to the culture of an immigrant generation or that of an old country felt without having to be incorporated in everyday behavior. End quote. Such symbolic ethnicity is voluntary and expressed in a myriad of ways. It's a type of ethnicity that suits many Polish Kashub people today because it can be practiced locally or from a distance. For example, remember those 2007 donations by parishioners of St. Hedwig's in Berries Bay to the Church of St. Martin in Borzakowy, Poland? Parishioners such as Andy Atmanski, Mary Glowczewski Blank, Anna Atmanski, and a host of others helped raise $5,000 for a roof replacement project, though they never spoke with or met its parishioners in Poland. And of course, there's the annual Polish Kashub Festival put on by the Wilno Heritage Society. Originally called Polish Day, it's now become Kashub Day, and its increasing popularity means local Polish Kashub ethnicity can probably survive the onslaughts of assimilation, acculturation, and globalization. It's more than just a celebration. It has become an important and sustaining ritual. Even if the festival performers and singers were never born in Kashubi, Poland, those who do perform on the Kashub Day stage become, authentically, if only for a day, Kashubian. The wearing of Kashubian costumes and the yellow and black colors, all imported from Poland, render the stage Kashubian. The awards presented for embroidery affirm that both their handiwork and its creators are Kashubian. This festival, as ritual, becomes heritage, and such performances, given in the cultural hearth of Canada's first Polish settlement, become authentic experiences. The practice of opening the festival with a prayer is also transformative. The blessing functions as a symbolic and a continuous ritual or tradition that connects ancestors, deeply rooted in faith and the land, to the scattered crop of descendants joined together for at least this one festive Kashubian day each year. Of course, at the end of the day, its symbolic participants return to their locales across the country, and those wearing Kashubian costumes don their civilian street clothes, either urban or rural. Matawaska Valley Polish Kashub descendants and the Wilno Heritage Society itself also rely on tourism to help spread ethnic identity. Indeed, without it, the festival would not exist. And without the festival, their symbolic interactions with their own ethnicity would not be as plentiful. These commemorative festivals and rituals, to borrow from the words of social scientist Mike Featherstone, quote, can be understood as acting like batteries which store and recharge the sense of communality, end quote, among the group. Such theories can make sense of Kashub Day when we view ethnicity as a fluid concept that is continually reinvented and negotiated. 
But to its credit, the Wilno Heritage Society has done more than recreate or revive ethnicity in the Barry's Bay and Wilno area. It's firmly grounded it within a transatlantic sphere. The Wilno Heritage Society's very existence has created a gathering space and a place of memory for the local as well as the broader Kashubian diaspora. And although the term diaspora was once used only to describe the dispersion and exile of Jews from their historic homeland, the word has now become more inclusive, returning to its original Greek meaning, quote, to sow over or scatter, end quote, referring to expansionism and not forced exile. In recent years, diaspora has included the broader scattering of many ethnic groups, such as the Irish, across several continents. So, by building its park and museum, the Wilno Heritage Society, under the curatorship of Shirley Mass Conley, has transformed a physical space into a place where ethnic interactions have been centered and are continually reoccurring for the Polish Kashub diaspora of North America. The original museum was a small one-story log building donated by the Chipier family in 1998. It remains a welcome center that houses books, paintings, furniture. The heritage store is only able to accommodate eight people comfortably, though. The second building is a log shed, also donated by the Chipiers, and functions as both a display of, among other things, lumbering, cabinet-making, and blacksmith tools. But on Kashub Day, it becomes a performance stage where singers, dancers, and others entertain large crowds. A third old building has a roof made of interlocking hollowed-out logs called a scooped roof. Under that roof, there is an iron cross made by Leon Ostrovsky, Wilno's famous blacksmith, who made that very significant cross. In 1936, it was rescued from a horrific fire that destroyed Wilno's church, consecrated in 1875 to honor St. Stanislav Kostka. A fourth building, a log farmhouse donated by the Burkat family, opened in 2008. Among other items, it displays typical 19th century pioneer objects found locally, including an old stove, blanket box, tables, chairs, spinning wheels, a cupboard, and beds. Like the ancestral homes of many local Polish Kashub families, its walls are hung with large pictures of the Virgin Mary and Jesus. In 2013, an old workshop featuring Ostrovsky's blacksmith tools and John Brutsky's workbench, complete with antique carpentry tools, was added. As well, floral pathways in the park were beautifully landscaped by Andy Brutsky and maintained since by Teeny Mask and Ursula Jeffrey, among others. The center of the park is dotted with heritage stones, commemorating and honoring original Polish Kashub settlers to the region. Admission is free, although the Wilno Heritage Society does appreciate donations, or take out a society membership, or make purchases from its heritage store. This park and museum has earned praise compared to other Ottawa Valley museums. Any passerby immediately can recognize the park's function as a gathering place for the Polish Kashub community. Embroidery patterns are emblazoned along some of exterior walls and the word Kashebe was painted on the front doors of the main stage by Mary Blosky and Sarah Chipier. If that's not enough, there are also numerous Kashubian flags that are flown throughout the park. Thus, not surprisingly, this park with its curious museum sometimes has been accused of being too parochial or too focused on its local identity. True, stepping into the Welcome Center, a non-Polish Kashub can be bombarded by the sheer volume of Polish Kashubian items on display. It might even be said by some wordy academic that this museum purely functions as a filiopietistic site for ancestor worship, but 
they could be wrong. Yes, the walls and ceiling are covered with large pictures and portraits, many from the collection of artist Frank Ritza, a visual hagiography of community leaders, including, of course, local parish priests, meets the visitor's eye. But when stepping into the Wilno Heritage Society's log shed, and sometimes stage, the Burkett farmhouse or the blacksmith shop, one is greeted with a different kind of display. The barn and farmhouse portray a different way of life, made up from many artifacts donated by residents and descendants. These include everything from wooden spoons to cast iron pots. Even the old Ostrowski blacksmith shop, moved to the park and rebuilt in 2012 by a local group led by Ed Shipier, includes many curious hand-forged tools once used by Ostrowski until his death in 1922. Still, other than small plaques, which give some information about the building or its tools, the character of the shop, as well as other buildings in the park, all point towards a Canadian pioneer way of life, rather than something specifically Polish or Kashubian. The fact these buildings and artifacts were once adopted and used by Polish Kashubs certainly mean that they retain sentimental value, but to the untrained 21st century eye, they really do evoke a Canadian way of life long past. They are simply a reminder of those rough and ready old days experienced in many different parts of frontier Canada before mechanization and convenience ease the routines of our everyday life. More often than not, such pioneer museums and displays that are found in Wilno as well as other places represent not so much a particular ethnicity as they do a nostalgic national or rural ideal through the display of their seemingly archaic objects. Through them, visitors are allowed to step back in history and back in time, perhaps with a nostalgic perspective. It is doubtful, though, for instance, that the original dirt floors in Wilno were as clean and bug-free as some of the newer concrete museum floors. And so, while the Wilno Welcome Centre attempts to educate visitors about Polish Kashubs, the barn and farmhouse represent an idealized pioneer past. Accordingly, the popularity of the Wilno Heritage Park and Museum before and after Kashub Day has become significant not only for the Polish Kashub diaspora, but to other non-Polish Kashubs as a heritage contact zone. Thousands of people who may or may not have roots in the ethnic group, or are simply just curious about those ethnic roots, if not pioneer ones too, often come to Wilno to visit the park. For instance, many European visitors with family or friends in the Canadian diaspora arrive every year, as do members of the North American diaspora. The Wilno Heritage Society's activities and hard work, especially through the efforts of its first curator, Shirley Mass Connolly, have made the Wilno Heritage Park and Museum a place filled with history in one small space. Since Peter Glovchewski took over as president and Beverly Glovchewski as secretary and membership chair, the variety and frequency of events at the park has been on the increase. During 2013, for example, Don Burkhad put on a wood carving display while Efrazine Kuchkowski provided a relaxing knitting day. So too was there a candle making day with Carol Sulfur and Marcella Sibulski, and a day where one room schoolhouse memories were celebrated with retired teachers Bernadette Dudek and Shirley Atmansky. Among many other events held that summer, Zosha Kozinski held a number of Kashubian embroidery days. Karen Connolly set up a display of vintage Pyrex dishes, common to many farmhouses in the area. Four days later, a craft day was held for about 50 visitors to the park who decorated ceramic bisquare mugs, coasters, tiles, and dessert plates 
using Polish and Kashubian designs, all under the artistic direction of Natalie Glavczewski. And in that same month, Peter Glavczewski and Ed Chipier gave a tip of the hat to their non-Polish Kashub neighbors via a Wilno Heritage float in the annual Irish gathering in nearby Killaloo. Canada Day celebrations have grown by leaps and bounds at the Wilno Park and include many activities for children too, including face painting, horseback riding, a family scavenger hunt, and even a pioneer hat and mustache photo booth. In June 2015, local elementary students visited the park, and a retired teacher and principal, Carol Sulphur, dressed up as Wilno's famous blacksmith, entertained. Other retired teachers volunteered too, while students wore pioneer clothing, sang a haying song, and learned how to shoe a horse. All of this intended to rejuvenate and reinvigorate a connection with local heritage. In an ever-globalizing world, the Wilno Heritage Society, through its park and museum, has been assisting people in their quest to remember the past, their ancestors, and a former way of rural life. The diaspora has been given a space to gather, and global social networks have grown as a result. Interestingly, Wilno's Heritage Park also serves as an important local meeting place. For instance, hundreds came to mourn, pray, and hold a candlelight vigil for three local women, all brutally murdered on a single day in September 2015. Although the ethnic language may be dying out, new forms of community dialogue have transformed what it means to be a Polish Kashub in Canada's first Polish settlement. As historian Jan Federowicz wrote in 1982, there really is no precisely defined Polish culture. There are, quote, a host of different Polish cultures defined by region, by social class, by historical tradition, by the time in which particular groups emigrated from Poland, and even by the foreign models imposed or adopted at different times, end quote, by each group. Still, new unique perspectives about what it means to be Polish Kashub in the 21st century, especially in and around Wilno and Barry's Bay, are emerging. Change is often difficult, and sometimes it moves slowly, and sometimes it moves too quickly. For the descendants of those first Polish Kashubs who arrived in Redford County in 1858, some 163 years ago this year, their identities, as well as their past, are still being negotiated and rediscovered. Although some of the Wilno Heritage Society activities may appear as invented traditions to some, they can and do represent both a significant and important link to a unique local past as much as they stand in counterpart to a globalized future. Amidst these inevitable tensions created by the passage of time, the very existence of the Wilno Heritage Society ensures a Polish Kashub sense of permanence. We reach back to move forward. But where do we go from here? The wider migration story is well documented, yet many aspects of the social history of the settlement are ripe for research. As daily life becomes more incongruent with the present, the social events, objects, and daily routines of generations past become important to preserve. The many interviews and oral histories being collected by Barry Conway and the station keepers in Barry's Bay is but one venture that preserves the past. Over the past three years, I've written articles in newspapers and scholarly journals about Polish Kashubs and their cars, the consumption and production of moonshine, the making of ethnic furniture, and soon to be published, a piece about a language clash and early educational history in the area. But who picks it up? The group you just heard from, 
cannot research and write forever. Perhaps it's someone listening. Will my own children be interested in this past? Perhaps it's a relative or grandchild of someone listening to this who has shown interest. Your stories are important and reveal much more about the past than you might think. Tell them. So there you have it. The story of the Kashubes of the West, or more accurately, the Polish Kashubes of Western Renfrew County. Perhaps not fantastic outlaws akin to Jesse James or Billy the Kid, and definitely not the stars of some spaghetti western, though word on the street locally has it that Kashubes love their C&W and have been known over the years to kick up their heels at a square dance or two. But whatever you make of them, or they make of themselves, they remain a unique and inspiring group of Canadians with a fascinating heritage and culture. Before we go, we can't help ourselves. Just one more Kashubian lullaby from everybody's grandmother, Teresa Prince. Sejawa mishka w dodole, pachawa dur konapole, uciekaj mishka ratuzicie, babshinze kotek swapiche, ayashe kotki neboje, i co uwowie tomuje. A little mouse was sitting in a barn watching the fields through a hole. Run away, little mouse, save your life, because a kitten is going to come and catch you. But I am not afraid of kittens, and what can the matter be with him? Today's show was written and performed by Joshua Blank, Peter Glovcheski, Angela Lubetsky, Shirley Mass Conley, and Teresa Prince all proud Polish Kashubes, and all local historians who have delved deeply into the heritage and culture of our unique Kashubes of Western Renfrew County. We hope you've enjoyed our show, Kashubes of the West, and would encourage you at your first opportunity to check out the Wilno Heritage Park and Museum in Wilno, just a hen's race down the road from Barry's Bay, Siberia, Pog Lake, Round Lake, and all those other wonderful places where, if you drive real slowly on a summer's night, you might just hear a Kashubian lullaby. And if you do get to the Wilno Heritage Museum, check out its bookstore. Pick up a book or two by one of our local historians who were kind enough to read for us today. At minimum, check out the Wilno Heritage Society's webpage at www.wilno.org. I'm Kathy Chepesky, and for my producer, Barry Conway, whose only regret in life is that he wasn't born a Kashub, we'd like to wish you, as our local Kashubians say, Dovidzenia and Westlands Boydian. Thank you.